from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Maya Bonhoff, a Baha'i musician and author of science fiction and fantasy works as well as short essays on issues related to the Baha'i faith. Her music is a joint venture with her husband, Jeff, and their musical styles include filk, which is a play on the word folk, a musical genre tied to the science fiction and fantasy community. The music in this program is also from Jeff and Maya's work. I started the interview by asking Maya where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Oh, well, I grew up kind of in a bunch of places. I'm an Air Force brat. Mm-hmm. So I grew up, well, my, my first memories are of getting on a, a ship to go to Morocco um, in New York City. My dad was stationed at Rabat Air Force Base. So the very earliest memories I have are actually living in a Muslim country, but as, a, you know, as an American, which is really kind of an interesting thing, as a very small child. And then we moved from there to California, and I spent most of my childhood years in Nebraska, in uh, Bellevue, which is just outside of Omaha, um, along the the river, and uh, when my dad was at Strategic Air Command there. So I grew up um, mostly in the Midwest. I was uh, raised a Christian, and so we went to this really wonderful Presbyterian church called Fort Crook Presbyterian, which was, according to the sign out front, dedicated in 1863 to the glory of God. Why don't you explain to our listeners what's so significant about the fact that the church was founded in 1863? to the glory of God. I didn't realize it at the time, of course. In fact, I, I'd even forgotten about that sign. What was significant to me about the church was that it was uh, probably the most family-like Christian church that I was ever a member of. And we were members of a lot of churches when I was a kid, but that one was, was really special. It had hatchet marks in the doors where the Indians you know, attacked it and that kind of thing. Mm. But when I became older and was investigating the Baha'i faith, I found out that Baha'u'llah, whose name means the glory of God, who was the founder of the Baha'i faith, declared his ministry in 1863. Mm. So that sign, which I discovered in going to an old photo album that my mom had, kind of had this totally different significance to me than it did, you know, growing up as a child. I didn't even really notice that it was there. Yeah, interesting. Now, Morocco is much different than Nebraska. Do you remember anything about Morocco? It was very different, um, hot, dry. I mean, it was a desert place, but, but I really loved it. It was, I'm kind of a, a wizard at heart, I guess. So the, the dry heat was kind of a, a, a nice environment for me. I remember swimming in the ocean a lot. Mm. I remember my mother telling me I was a seal, you know, and mm. the architecture, which I'm still fascinated by. I still love, above all of things, I love um, Moroccan decor, Moroccan architecture, all of that. I just love the, the design 
influence on the art and, and everything from that. And I'm also very interested in the study of the history of that part of the world, I think, as a result of having lived there. I also picked up speaking a French-Arabic patois because I was a little kid and we absorbed languages like crazy. And we had a Fatima whose name was Arkaya, and she taught me how to speak it. Mm-hmm. So I had a natural affinity for, for French. So when I went to school and ended up taking a language, French was the language I ended up with because it reminded me of my time in Morocco. So what was it like in your, er- your early years growing up in Morocco and then coming to a place like Nebraska? Was there an <laughs> adjustment required there? Well, the, the adjustment really, I think, was, was more at the Morocco end. I, I don't remember it. as I'm, I remember my, my parents, I think, my mother, I think, was the most affected by it. She was appalled at the way the Moroccans treated their women. And I remember our our Fatima telling her one day, Mom had noticed that her ears had these long slits in the lobe. Mm -hmm. And the Moroccans wear, I I have many pairs of Moroccan earrings, have these these earrings with very thick hooks that go through the ear, not like little cute ear wires like we have. And she asked her where she got those slits, and Arkaya said, My husband loves me so much. When he thought another man looked at me, he ripped my earrings from my ears to show how much he loved me. Oh, my God. And my mother was, like, you know, completely beside herself with this. And she was also, I, I think she noted, and I noted that, that there was a really interesting dynamic in the relationship between Moroccans and, and Americans. If you were walking towards them on the street, sometimes they would move to the other side of the street so that you, they wouldn't be passing you so closely. And other times, they would be completely fascinated with us, especially the children. They would want to touch us, our blonde hair and, you know, that kind of thing. And our light skin were just fascinating to them. And sometimes it was very cordial. We went to barbecues where they would throw an entire lamb into a pit, you know, and and barbecue it. And the food was wonderful. We came back to Nebraska. I think it was kind of a culture shock for my mom because she saw that kind of treatment of women. And then when she got back to the Air Force, she was very aware of the way the Air Force men treated their wives, mm. which was different but similar. There was a problem there. And I think my mom, who tended to go on crusades for things, I think that put her off on one of her crusades. But, but the, it very much affected her, that, that living there. I think it, she, it, she took her Christian faith very seriously, and I think that it, it did turn her off to Islam as a result. And yet there was still something very spiritual about the people that she met, and it was difficult for her to reconcile it. So I think that kind of set me up for the search I went on later in life, Mm. trying to to kind of reconcile those two cultures. Right. So what was your spiritual life like when you grew up? It was really very supportive and very wonderful. My parents were very active in, in our church, and that particular church we went to, the Fort Crook one, was just a really wonderful place to be. I mean, it was like a big family. We had, you know, our major holidays were celebrated with members of the church. We would go to each other's houses for Thanksgiving. My dad would do a a Polish Easter, and we would invite people from the church several times during the summer, like once a month at least. One of the families owned a big lake, and we would all go, a little lake, actually it was a large pond along the Platte River, and we would all go there. The whole church would just up and... After service, we'd all go there, and we'd have all this wonderful food, and we'd swim, and we'd fish, and we'd do all this stuff together. That was the kind of life it was. Mm. And my mother was kind of a Bible scholar. 
and she taught Sunday school, and so the dad, and she was the choir director, which got me singing really early. And it was a very wonderful, supportive thing, and she insisted that I know my scriptures. She insisted that I learn my Bible upside down and backwards so that I could quote chapter and verse and that I understood what I was quoting. And she told me something that was very formative for me. She said, never, always question the authority of men. (laughs) Never question the authority of God. And if you hear something from the pulpit that is not in the book, ask your your priest or your pastor where he got that idea that he was preaching. And if he doesn't give you a satisfactory answer, get out of that church and find another one. Wow. So I've been a Baptist and a Presbyterian and a Methodist and, you know, a, a bunch of different things because of that. She had a very strong belief in that, um, mm. that the scriptures were where you went. You didn't listen to what people said. Mm-hmm. You listened to what God said. Yeah. So that was a very, a, a very I, I think, important facet, you know, of, of my growing up. And like I say, we ended up in a lot of different churches because of that. <laughs> <laughs> Some really interesting ones. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. So you grew up in uh, Nebraska through junior high, high school? Um, I actually, the first year of high school, I was, I was there through kindergarten. My dad was in Vietnam for two years, or for, not for two years, for about a year and a half, I guess, he was gone. And we, Mom and I relocated back here in California for my sixth grade and part of my seventh grade. And then I was back in Nebraska again. Um, Dad had did top-secret work. He was air reconnaissance. He, he analyzed. Mm. An, an, an analyst. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, he briefed President Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis mm. and uh, about what was on Cuba, what was on the island. Yeah. That was his specialty, and there was really only two places he could do it. So we ended up back at Strategic Air Command. It was either there or the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. And so I went up to my first year of high school there, um, and was gloriously happy. It was really kind of a wonderful place to be. I got picked on a lot because I was too tall and too fat and too bunch of stuff. But when I was 15, my dad died. Oh, and my. And we got kicked off the reservation pretty quickly and ended up having to come back to California, where I have been ever since. Now, when you say reservation, what do you mean? <laughs> the Air Force Base. <laughs> you call it the reservation? I always talk about it as yes, the reservation. Oh, interesting. Um, we lived in government housing, and yeah. when your soldier dies, they hand you a check, and they tell you sayonara, and you have to be off the base in a month. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So we came back to California to bury Dad mm-hmm. and find a way to live. Yeah. What part of California? We ended up in um, a little town called Meadow Vista, which is just above Auburn, which is about 30 miles above Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went started high school, relocated, and started my high school all over again there, and um, ended up graduating from high school at Placer Union High School in Auburn, California. Then I discovered the Baha'i faith and ended up in Grass Valley, California, for about 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me how you ran into the Baha'i faith. Well, I was going to Sierra College, which was just down the hill from where we were living in Rockland. And I was part of a drama group down there, as well as being involved in the music curriculum. But I had gotten involved in in drama. I loved designing sets and scenery and that kind of thing and doing lighting design. Started working at a theater group. And I didn't realize it, but but one of the kids in the group was a Baha'i. I kind of 
heard the word Baha'i, you know, a few times. My sister had mentioned it to me when she sent me a Fields and Cross album, but I had no idea what that meant, you know, there were Baha'is. My other sister had, had sent me the album, and my second sister mentioned the Baha'i faith to me at one point, and I don't even remember what she said, just, have you heard of it? And kind of heard her talking about it with my mom, but nothing stuck. Mm-hmm. My friend I knew was a Baha'i, and I thought, it was some kind of Hawaiian thing, sounding Hawaiian to me. Right. Then I walked into the student union one day and overheard him tell my best friend that Christ had returned and his name was Baha'u'llah. Well, I became furious. I was absolutely bitten furious. If I'd had a Bible in my hand, I would have slapped him upside the face with it, silly. I was so mad. Mm. How dare he, you know, make this claim that Christ had returned. I don't remember the whole sequence of events, but I did. I got very, very charged up, and my friend said, look, I don't want to upset you. I don't want to screw up our friendship. I really like you, and I don't want anything bad to happen, so I'm not going to talk to you about this, okay? Mm. If you're interested, you go to the library, the school library, there's lots of books, but I don't want to talk to you if if you're going to be angry with me. So I looked at it. He did say one thing, though, that stuck. He said, I said, how can you say that? None of the prophecies have been fulfilled. All these things, you know, Jesus coming in the clouds with great glory and, and that. And he looked at me and he said, well, the Pharisees and the, the Jewish rabbis thought that they understood the prophecies that, by which Christ was going to come first and what happened to them. And knowing my Bible as well as I did, I knew exactly what happened to them. They didn't see him. Mm-hmm. And my friend was right. The prophecy said that then he would come in the clouds with great glory. It says so in the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, oh my goodness, I can't be Pharisee. I can't, I can't do that. I have to investigate this. I have to put this to rest. I have to know one way or the other. So I went on a, about a month-long binge of reading everything I could lay my hands on about the Baha'i faith, good and bad. I read cult-bashing books. I read the Baha'i scriptures. Um, I had him get me a prayer book, I got Hidden Words, and I got the Tabia Dawn, and I got a book by William Sears. Now, Maya, what's the uh, Hidden Words and what's the Kitabi Gan? These are two um, books of Baha'i scripture, both written by Baha'u'llah, the founder of the faith, and the Kitabi Gan. Kitabi Gan is Arabic for the Book of Certitude, and it deals with something that was very near and dear to my heart. It deals with prophecy, both in the Bible and the Quran and how Baha'u'llah, actually, he's, he's actually proving the mission of his predecessor, the Bab, which means the gate, who was, like, his John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's proving this, this advent, you know, of this new message from God in that book. And in the Hidden Words, Hidden Words is another book of his, his almost like meditation mm-hmm. uh, on different qualities, different attributes of God, different virtues. And they're very easy to grasp and very poetic, which is wonderful. And my friends gave me these two books and a prayer book uh, when I asked for them. And uh, like I said, I read all these different things. I read J.E. Esselmont wrote a book called Baha'u'llah in the New Era, which I think was the one fact book written by uh, a Baha'i sympathizer. And my, my thought is this. If you really want to know what someone believes, go to the, you, know, you need to get it right from the horse's mouth. You can't really trust cult-bashing books because... They have a vested interest in you not looking at it. So you have to do it both ways. Mm-hmm. My discovery was that the cult bashing books got things wrong. They, they said things that were obviously not true. 
um, if you looked at the historical record. And I went back and actually did things like looking up the newspaper accounts of some of the events in the formation of the faith to see what it looked like from the outside for people who were just watching it happen. Hmm. After about a month of that, I was in great turmoil. My mother, who was also a born-again Christian, was watching me go through this and saying, you're being misled, this is terrible, you can't, you know, you can't do this, you can't do this. And I remember one night where I ran out of the house, I was going to a fireside, my friend had started inviting me to firesides up in Grass Valley. What's a fireside? Which is a, it's a meeting, it's an informal meeting usually held in someone's home, where people just get together and there may be a speaker who has something to say about the faith on a particular theme, or maybe you, they just have people come in and ask questions. Mm-hmm. We ha- they held theirs, the Grass Valley Baha'is held theirs at this, the house of this wonderful woman named, I'm going to cry, <laughs> just oh. thinking about it, mm-hmm. uh, named Donnie Liebrich, and um, she was in her 60s, I guess, and she had this little tiny house, and she would cram 70 people into it, <laughs> into her living room for mm-hmm. these meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them were youth, and most of them were not Baha'is. They were people who would come there to hear about the faith, and... Um, I had been going to these meetings and, and asking questions of different Baha'is and watching the Baha'is. And one, one Friday night, I left my mom's house, and she said, I'm just really worried about you. I'm really afraid of what's going to happen. I just want you to find the truth. And as I was going out the back door, I glanced down at the bookshelf, and there was this little Jehovah's Witness book sitting on there. Um, Mama has some Jehovah's Witness friends, and she collected the little books. It was a dark blue book, and on the spine, in great big letters, was the word truth. So I grabbed it, and I opened it, and my eyes fell on a passage that said, by, that was a quote from the book of Matthew, and it said, by their fruits you shall know them, meaning the, the people of God. If you tell a good prophet from a bad prophet by this effect that he had on his people, on the people's lives. He would be able to see the transformation in their lives. He'd be able to see it in his words, in his life. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go look at these Baha'is, and I'm going to look at this Baha'u'llah really carefully now and see what I see. Mm-hmm. And I went to this fireside, and I looked at those people, and I looked especially at Donnie, who had been a Baha'i for 34 years at that point in her life. And I couldn't have imagined a more wonderful human being who had been through so much and lost in her life, and yet was this joyful, radiant being. I mean, you can't even imagine what this woman was like. She was so radiant. Mm-hmm. And the people, the, the people that were there, you know, it was just wonderful. I mean, I was just completely blown away by it. And I had to admit that when I read the hidden words of the Hawalah, I heard the voice of Jesus in those words. Mm-hmm. So I went home from that, and I sat up that night, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I opened my Bible. We do that. We Christians would do that. We would flop open our Bible, and it would tell us something. And what it told me was, Jesus said, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and there will be one fold and one shepherd. And I opened the hidden words, and I read the words of the Hallelujah. I'm not even sure which hidden word I read, but it felt as if Jesus was standing right there next to me saying, there I am. Mm. That's the fold. I'm a shepherd. And I just knew I had to become a Baha'i at that point. And so the next time I went back to speak to the fireside, I said, I I want to become a Baha'i. 
and I became a Baha'i at the age of 18. Mm. Now, what was your mother's reaction to you committing to being a Baha'i? She was torn. I, I know she was horrified on one level. I mean, I had been raised a Christian all my life. I owned four Bibles that I won in competition. You know, I mean, it was she, she couldn't understand it, and yet she told me later that she saw such a change in my behavior and my my moods and my my being that it, it couldn't help but impress her that there was something going on there. But she still called the minister and his wife, and she had them come and talk to me about what I was doing. And I basically just smiled and 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 told them everything about Baha'u'llah that I could think of, you know, and what had led me to this decision, to the, to the belief and understanding that when Christ said he would return with a new name, which is in the book of Revelation, he, Baha'u'llah was that return, and Baha'u'llah was the new name. And, you know, that, that was all there was to it. I was convinced of it, and I went through all the logic with her and with, with them, and she was hanging out in the other room in the kitchen with me. Mm-hmm. And they sobbed and they cried and they said, you know, you're accepting second best and, and all of that. And I just said, I have to do this. And we, I stuck with it. I stayed in yeah. the church for a while. And I remember um, one Easter, the, the, the Easter that followed my, my accepting of the high faith, um, the minister preached a, uh, a sermon right at me. I was sitting in the front row because I was a member of the choir. And he preached right at me this whole thing about accepting second best, not, you know, not sticking with Jesus. And he had been a very tolerant man mm-hmm. up to this point in, mm-hmm. in his, his life. He sometimes would quote Buddha from the pulpit, or he would quote Zoroaster from the pulpit, or, you know, this sort of thing. But he stopped doing that after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, because what happened shortly after that was that two of my friends, who were also members of the church, who youth, became Baha'is as well. Mm-hmm. And then, about six months after I became a Baha'i, I distinctly remember I was, it was about five in the morning, and I was lying in bed, and my mother walked into the room sobbing and said she had the Kitabi Adon in one hand and her Bible in the other hand. And she said, I've just finished reading these books, and I think I'm a Baha'i, and oh I don't God. know what to do. And I looked at her and said, Mom... Come with me to Fireside on Friday night. They say prayers, they kiss you, they hug you, they love you, they feed you, and you're a Baha'i. She did. So my poor minister lost four members of his congregation to the Baha'i faith over a period of about six months Mm. and became a very different man indeed (laughs) and and taught a very different message. And I remember the, the, the final Sunday that we were there, my little group, music group I was in, we, call it, we were called Dayspring, and we performed, um, actually was arranged for us to perform at the church, and we had only been told, you know, you can't, don't preach openly about Baha'u'llah in the church, just sing some music, so we did, and there was a guest uh, minister that week, and um, after we had sung, and he gave, came up and gave his, his sermon, and I was sitting next to my mom in the back of the, the church, and he started talking about his trip to Morocco. And Mom sat up, because she loved Morocco in her own way, and he was talking about, you know, the people he met and, and all of this, and Mom was getting more and more interested. And he started talking about this woman that he had met, who was the most beautiful, most radiant, most 
highest, most devoted, most loving, caring, wonderful Muslim woman that he had met. And wasn't it a shame she was going to hell because she was a Muslim? Oh, my God. And my mom shot to her feet, walked out of the sanctuary, and didn't go back. Wow. After that. it was That was it. She said, you know what? I, I can't tolerate this. So so she, um, I moved up to Grass Valley shortly after that to live with a, a household of girl Baha'is mm-hmm. up here. And my mom sold her house, um, her car, most of her belongings, bought a Winnebago and went across the United States to tell other people about Baha'u'llah. <laughs> wow. Now, Maya, you're a musician and you're an mm-hmm. author, and mm-hmm. I'm just wondering when all that started to bud for you. I guess you did mention that you were in the group Dayspring, so mm-hmm. I guess you'd been doing music for some time. Yeah. My mom, like I said, she put me in the choir when I was eight mm-hmm. and um, taught me to sing, you know, and I have a natural sense of, of relative pitch, so I naturally sing harmonies. So when I became, actually when I was about 14, I guess I picked up a guitar for the first time and started playing and writing music and, and doing that kind of thing. And so by the time I became a Baha'i, I was, had pretty much established that I wanted to be a musician. That was what I wanted to do with my life. This other, the other youth in the community, in the Baha'i community up in Grass Valley, there were a number of them who were musicians. There were about five of them all together. And we just decided to form a group, and we started doing music. Everybody wrote music, and we would work out arrangements and harmonies, and we called ourselves Dayspring. When we heard about the big youth conference in St. Louis in 1975, we wanted to, to go. So we hooked up with another group of musicians, young Baha'i musicians, and went off doing that. So I've been kind of doing that, you know, the whole musical thing for, for quite a while. We got more serious about it. The band changed. New members came in and out. At one point, we had about half Baha'is and half Mormons in the band, which is really interesting. And then I met my, my husband, Jeff, um, through the band, he became the guitar player. Mm-hmm. And we got married. He wasn't a Baha'i at the time we got married. And then he became a Baha'i about a year and a half or so after we got married. And we've done music together ever since. Now we've got a, a recording studio. He got to work for a music software company called Magic. So he set up a, how many ever track you want, you know, recording studio um, in the house. We record CDs and we perform mostly, well, we, re- we perform at the Baha'i Center here in San Jose a lot, mm-hmm. but we perform mostly at science fiction conventions, which I came to through being a science fiction writer, which is something that I've been writing since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, but I got real serious about it about 18 years ago and decided that I wanted to try to get published, and that managed to work out for me. I actually did get published in Analog Science Fiction Magazine, and since then I've gotten I don't know how many stories uh, published in Analog and other magazines. I've got six novels out, all of them fantasy. And what are the titles of those novels? Um, my first three, which are high fantasy novels, which means sort of invented worlds, are uh, The Mary, Tammany, and The Crystal Rose. And uh, they were originally published by Bain back in the early 90s. And uh, The Mary is now available through Sense of Wonder Press as a trade paperback, and Tammany is going to come and be re-released again shortly. But that's a, a set which is about, oddly enough, the ad, sort of about the advent of the manifestation of God or an avatar. 
and what it does to the lives of the individuals and the lives of the society that, that the, the profit comes to. My fourth novel is called Spirit Gate, and it's off, it was also available through Bain. Spirit Gate is, again, religion is kind of a central theme in it. it it's kind of a, it's a fantasy novel, but it kind of asks a, a, a science fiction question about what happens to someone who has absolute power. And it's, it's a, an alternate history um, fantasy, actually. It's set in ancient Poland and is really about a conflict of cultures, the, the pagan um, Polish people, Mongolian people who were living there after the inroads of the, the Mongols, the collision with the Catholic Church, which I frame as being the Frankish Church in the novel, and the Muslim culture coming up from the south, and kind of what happens in, in that arena when absolute power comes into the hands or potentially comes into the hands of the characters in, in the book. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's got, some, again, some kind of central religious themes in it. The fifth novel is called Magic Time Angel Fire, and it's actually the second book in the Magic Time series, which was conceived of by teleplay writer Mark Scott Vickery, who's written, actually my favorite, he wrote my favorite episode of Deep Space Nine. Um, oh, and, okay. uh, episodes of Voyager and, and that. He's worked in television um, quite a bit. And he conceived of this series of novels um, that I wrote the second one, which is called Angel Fire. And it's, it's about what happens if to a world where technology fails and magic suddenly begins to work. Mm-hmm. It sounds like fantasy, but it's actually, it's, it's actually kind of a crossover between fantasy and science fiction. Mm-hmm. And most recently, uh, this last October, my sixth novel... Mr. Twilight I came out, which is a collaboration with Michael Reeves, who is a wonderful, wonderful writer. He's written Batman novels, Star Wars novels. He's got a raft of his own stuff out there. He's got Emmys for all kinds of stuff, and he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. So I wrote Mr. Twilight with him, and uh, it's about kind of a kind of a, a supernatural detective named Colin who solves bizarre supernatural kind of mysteries. Mm-hmm. So that it's, that's, it's, that's through Delray. It mm-hmm. was published by Delray this last October. You have a story called White Dog? Yeah, I have a story called White Dog. I have had a, I've had a lot of short fiction published over the years. In uh, Most of my science fiction has been in Analog Magazine, which is an American magazine. But there was this kind of fantasy and magic realism magazine in the U.K. called Interzone that I started publishing stories that are really near and dear to my heart, the kind of off-the-wall magic realism stories that I really love to write. And I wrote this one for them called White Dog that was a finalist for the British Science Fiction Association Award in 1999. And the thing that that pleased me the most about that, really, is that the White Dog contains, and the title comes from, a little vignette from the life of Abdu'l-Baha, who was the son of, of Baha'u'llah, uh, while he was in New York City in 1911-1912. He was traveling the, in Europe and the United States. And when he was in New York during that time, there was a little episode that involved a white dog. And I worked it into the story. So I was really pleased when it was nominated for this very prestigious science fiction award. Mm. Would you mind reading that excerpt? I would love to, actually. Please. Okay. This, is, uh, this little excerpt here is, is like I said, it's, it's kind of woven into the narrative, and it really is there to kind of establish 
one of the themes of the story, which is how do people who seem alien, how are they able to establish common ground with other people? And I think we get a sense of, of the, who the protagonist is just from me reading this, this piece. There's a little, little quote from Abu Baha, or actually from Baha'u'llah, that I, I, I put at the top of this, which isn't actually in the, in the piece, but it kind of goes with it. Mm-hmm. Baha'u'llah says, just as physical science has shown that every particle of matter in the universe attracts and influences every other particle, no matter how minute or how distant, so psychical science is finding that every soul in the universe affects and influences every other soul. Mm. So here's the reading. Okay. A way about me. In my young mind, way translated to power or magic, the fairy tales I read were full of such things, and they inspired hope. An ugly princess might possess such goodness as would grant her the gift of beauty. I was certain my powers, such as they were, did not run to literally making myself beautiful, but now knew that they would allow me to wring compassion out of the kind and tolerance out of the surly. Perhaps in some sense my way was a veil behind which I could hide my repulsiveness, and if I could not transform myself, perhaps I could transform the way others saw me. As I grew older, I discarded the idea of magical powers, of course, but I still recognized that what Mother had said was true. I did have a way about me. By the time I was in junior high school, I had concocted the theory that what I had exercised on Bobby Bain and countless others since was a shrewd understanding of the human psyche. Everyone needed acceptance, even the seemingly needless. The history of my religion provided me with a totem for my ability to carry the mindless, visceral hostility toward the alien, the white dog. It is recorded of the son of the founder of my faith that when he in his twilight years journeyed through the United States, he would travel the neighborhoods of New York in a carriage accompanied by a handful of believers. In one of the affluent neighborhoods on his accustomed route lived an elderly woman who had shown such hostility for the master, as he was called, that the believers avoided her at all costs, finding other paths for him to take to his appointment. The master, on the other hand, would seek her out, making certain that his carriage passed by her house every morning where she could be seen taking the sun on her front porch. While the believers cringed and prayed, the master would smile and wave at the dowager, who would only glare at this Persian mystic, then avert her gaze, her hands stroking and smoothing the silky fur of a small white dog in her lap. One morning, after he had been rebuffed repeatedly by the hostile old woman, the master bid the driver stop before her home. Over the protest of his companion, he debarked and strolled up the path to the front porch. Seating himself across from his enemy, he noted how very beautiful was the little white dog and inquired as to what kind of dog it was. Well, the woman loved that dog above all things, as the master obviously knew. His praise of the animal unleashed such a flood of delight from her that she regaled her unwelcome guest with tales of the little animal's cleverness. The master was late for his appointments that day, but he had made a great friend. When the believers begged to know how he had transformed the forbidding harpy into a welcoming angel, he told them about her beloved pet. Everyone, he said, and I imagined a twinkle in the deep azure eyes, has a white dog. (laughs) Sweet. So what's your current musical project? Well, right now we're working on our second serious album, meaning our, an album of, of all original music. Our first one was called Manhattan Sweet, and uh, the title track of which was inspired by the, um, the High World Congress in New York City in 1992. 
and our experiences there. We're going to, I think this one, I'm not really, we haven't really settled on a, on a title yet. It may be Mobius Street, it may be something else, but we're working on that right now and hoping to release it this winter at one of the conventions that we are, we're going to be attending. Mm. But we're, we're just starting the, the recording process on that right now. And my, my husband is, is absolutely tickled pink because he scored an incredible coup. We had long said that if we could have any bass player we wanted on, on our albums, we would want Peter Gabriel's bass player, Tony Levin. Mm. And Tony Levin is actually going to be playing on several cuts on this album. So oh. we're incredibly thrilled oh, that's great. <laughs> with that. This is a man who's, who's played with you know, King Crimson and Peter Gabriel and John Lennon and Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits and just, you know, uh, so much of our, as Pink Floyd. I mean, it's just, the list goes on and on and on. So we're very thrilled to have that. But we also do, we do another different kind of music, too. We do a, a kind of music called folk music, which is uh, was a misprint of the word folk music, um, which is a kind of music that's associated with science fiction and fantasy conventions. Mm. And uh, our take on it is that we do rock and roll classics and then change the lyrics to be completely absurd. Um, <laughs> so we have two albums out also that, that do that, where mm. they're parody albums. Um, one is called Retro Rocket Science, and the other one is called... Aliens ate my homework. <laughs> when is your new album going to be released, do you think? I'm, we're hoping to release it in January. We're going to be at a silk convention, actually, a silk music convention in Georgia called Gasilk, <laughs> GA Silk, and we're hoping to release it there. So crossing our fingers and, and hoping that we can really <laughs> dig in and, and get this done. My husband also works on other people's projects, and he's had, yeah. he just finished a major one, so... We're, we're kind of just getting down into it. But, yeah, that's what we're hoping. Right. So hopefully it's January. Cool. What are your plans for the future, Maya? Well, um, to keep writing and, and keep performing. Um, mm-hmm. We love, you know, doing performing for, uh, for, for folk musicians at science fiction conventions because it's, it's a really wonderful audience. They really mm-hmm. listen to your lyrics and they really... You know, they really get into the music. They don't let other things distract them, which is an amazing thing And uh, for, a, for a musician to, to have that. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, um, to keep my writing going, uh, my day job is writing. <laughs> and what is that? So, I actually do what I do most of the time, besides working on my own uh, pieces. I'm actually working on a, a, my own work, a young adult novel, about a 14-year-old witch <laughs> named Kala. It's called The Sutherland Inheritance, and that's my, my current project. But I also ghostwrite science fiction, fantasy, memoirs, all kinds of different stuff for various people, and I edit other people's work. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's just a wonderful thing to do. Sure beats beating, working for somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I shall either right. have no bosses but I, or I have lots of bosses. I'm, right. I'm not sure which it is. But, uh, so I'm, I'm hoping to keep doing that and keep yeah. publishing uh, my own stuff. Right. And uh, right now, I actually I have a, a story, uh, an alternate history story that was entitled "O Pioneer." That's a re, a kind of a looking at the Columbus discovers America thing from a different angle, and it's up for the Sidewise Award for alternate history, mm. which is going to be awarded later this month. So I'm crossing my fingers and on that one. Sure, sure. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, you have children. Actually, yes, I do. I have three. I have a 21-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 4-year-old. 
That's a widespread. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, makes life interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but it also builds in baby setting, which is yeah. really good. Yeah. That's good. But yeah, they're, they're great. They're all musical. Um, every last one of them. My son is an incredible guitarist, just like his dad. Mm-hmm. He writes incredible songs, just like his dad. And he's got a great singing voice. And I'm just, you know, I'm thrilled. And my daughter also is, is very musical and plays flute and just, you know. And the youngest one, who's also a little girl, just loves books and loves singing. And it's great. We're buried in books all the time. That's cool. Which just throws me pieces. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Hey, I'd like to, to invite people to visit our website and, and check out what's there and, you know, kind of keep an ear out for our music. <laughs> and that's uh, www.mysticfig.com, yeah. Okay. Which is an odd title, I know. And Where did it come from? <laughs> that's a weird little story in and of itself. There is a, 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 a story, a tale in the, in the founding of the faith, that one of the things that the Muslim mullahs used to tell people when they were trying to keep them away from listening to the Baha'i teachers uh, we're telling them about Baha'u'llah, they would say, oh, oh, don't, you can't listen to those people because what will happen if you listen to the words they say is that your mouth will fall open and they will pop these these magical dates into your mouth and you will be converted to pies through this substance they put in a date. <laughs> well, Jeff remembered that story, kind of, but he got figs instead of dates. <laughs> so instead of being mystic dates, we got to be mystic figs. And he said, oh, I should change it. And I said, no, mystic figs sounds fine. I think it's actually better because you could... Mystic date could have another connotation. Exactly. I said, you know, given what's going on on the Internet right now, I don't think we want to go there. So yeah. mystic date works just great. I think it works perfect. So that's our, that's our website and our, our little indie label, uh, music label. Mm-hmm. And I've also got some stuff out there on my writing and whatnot because yeah. I'd love people to go out and buy my books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it helps. It helps. When I get talking about writing, it just gets to be nuts because I, I, I love it so much. That yeah. <laughs> Actually, it, it, it's interesting. I, I, the, the major things that happen in my life, in my art and in my Baha'i life, seem to happen kind of at the same time. I mean, I kind of started as a musician, both wanting to do it professionally and, and doing it for the faith at about the same time. And with my writing, I had been tinkering with writing since I was a little tiny kid, and Wrong about 1989 or so. Well, actually, before that, I started taking it seriously, and I started writing this really huge novel that's probably like 1,100 pages long or something, and just was more therapy than anything else. Mm. And I thought, you know, I really want to maybe try to get published. So I sent it off, and I got a really nice letter back saying, well, this isn't really for us, but you have a very pleasant voice. It just didn't start out quick enough. And she said, you might want to look at writing some short fiction first. So I, I picked up a bunch of analog and, and Asimov science fiction magazines and read them, and I fell madly in love with analog, with the stories that were in it, and with the sensibilities of the editor, Stan Schmidt. And about the same time, I'd been writing a lot of essays and stuff, you know, just on different subjects, mostly for the faith. I'd been writing a lot of, of Baha'i-oriented essays and, and teaching materials and stuff like that. And I was asked by Kalimat Press to do a piece on being a Baha'i musician. So I wrote this, this piece called My Mother Was a Singer for Creative Circle, which is a, an anthology that was put out by Kalimant Press, which is a Baha'i press. And I was kind of tinkering with that and working on it. And at about the same time, I wrote this really long story, 19,500-word novella, 
called Hand Me Downtown that was sort of science fiction and sort of not. It was it was one of those kind of odd things. And I I knew from having read Analog that the editor would like the story. And I thought maybe he wouldn't be able to publish it, but he might tell me possibly where I might find a home for it. So I kind of sent those two things out about the same time. And I got this big, fat letter back, and I got the manuscript back, and I got this letter from Stan, and I thought, oh, he's rejected it, but he's written a two-page letter, so maybe he'll tell me, you know, where I might publish it. Mm -hmm. And I got about halfway through the letter and realized he was telling me he was buying this 19,500-word novella. (laughs) And that there were just a few changes he wanted me to make. And he was so complimentary about my writing that if this is the first thing you tried to publish, my goodness, you know, you must have really woodshed it a lot, which I I had. And when I told him after that, I said, you know, my high school English teacher told me that you will never sell anything over 3,000 words. Why did did she say that? That that was his understanding of it, was that magazines published stories Uh that were 3,000 words long, and that was a short story, and that was all there was to it. And Mm -hmm. other than that, there was just novels. That was all you could do was novels. Mm-hmm. And I stopped writing for about 10 years because he said that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I wish I could. I told Stan Schmidt, I said, you know, I wish I could locate that teacher and say, here's, a nine, you know, uh, here's my first publication, 19,500 words. <laughs> <laughs> you see, it, it does work. So Stan explained all that to me, and, and he just kept buying my stuff. After a couple of years, I had, I had finished a novel and sent out a bunch of letters and to some agencies and said, you know, I'd, I'd like an agent. And I got five quick responses that said, yeah, we'd all like to be, <laughs> like to be your agent. So I, I got to pick an agent, which is really kind of an interesting thing. That's excellent. And within a month, my agent had sold my first novel. And it sort of just, you know, it's gone up and down from there, but yeah. it was really an interesting thing. And about exactly the same time that my first story came out in Analog, my first Baha'i essay came out in that um, thing from Polymont Press. Mm. So it was just kind of a neat piece of synchronicity. Yeah. You know, for, for writers out there, you know, if any of the listeners are writers, if you're writing your, your magnum opus novel, seriously consider writing some short stuff for magazines. It really helps you hone your craft and can help you build a following so that when you finally do get out there with that novel, there may be people waiting for it. Yeah. It's, it's a very cool thing. Yeah. So, yeah, writing is, is really cool. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's terrific. It's good when you find your passion. It is. And it was a long struggle for a lot of years, I have to say, trying to hold down a, a day job mm. and yet and be a writer. Mm. And what I didn't realize at the time I was trying to do that was that there was a point where if I had quit my day job and really concentrated on my writing, I probably could have been more successful then than I than I ended up being because I didn't realize how quickly you had to get stuff out. Mm. And I was trying to juggle, and I loved people at my work, and I liked my work. I was a software designer and uh, manager of software design team. And it wasn't until two and a half years ago where God just got teased with me and just really kind of probably fed up with my, oh, well, I can't quit my day job kind of stuff. So he made sure that I got drop kicked out of my day job. (laughs) And I was so relieved, and it was one of the best things that ever happened, and I immediately started freelance writing, expecting that at any moment I was going to have to go back and find another day job, and here two and a half years later, I'm still a freelance writer. And it's actually getting, and getting to be more and more successful at that as well. So, 
it's really important, I think, you know, especially for young Baha'is and young people of any faith, for that matter, to really you know, look at your dreams and, and try to see if there isn't a way that you can pursue them mm. and follow your calling. Yeah. Maya, thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Maya Bonhoff, a Baha'i author and musician. For more information on Maya, you can go to the website mysticfig.com. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.